Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So I, um, I've been uh, writing about joy for some time and uh, doing this, uh, leaving this course since 2003. Uh, and I wanted to give you a little bit of a background, uh, particularly people who are uh, Dharma practitioners um, that uh, that might you might relate to why I was motivated to do that. I first got into the practice in uh, 1974 and fell in love with it. It changed my life, as probably many people here uh, could uh, say about their own situation. And for quite some time, it brought me deep happiness and joy. At some point, I became very serious about practice, however. Dead serious about practice. (laughs) As sometimes can happen, I lost my joy, and I tangled up the end of suffering. I remember being on this one very intense, very inspiring retreat that mostly Dharma teachers were taking at the time. This is in 1984, and each evening the uh, the Sayadaw, Burmese master, would end the, the talks, may you speedily get off the wheel of samsara and escape from the woes of this world and realize nibbana. That would be his blessing, which he said from a very sincere and compassionate place. That kind of message can easily be interpreted as thinking that this world is to be escaped from, avoided, gotten rid of, and that somehow enjoying oneself, delighting in the goodness of life, um, is unBuddhist. And I had come from a very mm, devotional, celebratory, what's called bhakti path. And it was my, my nature, uh, at least for some aspect of, of me, loves life and has always enjoyed celebrating the, the goodness in it. And that dissonance created some confusion for me. Um, not on a rational level, but on an internal, subtle belief that I hadn't realized I'd adopted. Uh, and for, for some time, as I said, I, uh, I did lose my joy as I misinterpreted the teachings. When I reclaimed it, when I realized that I had to be myself, I had, I had to just let my natural expression of the Dharma as it comes through me, 
be honored rather than trying to fit myself into some kind of an ideal, um, I came back to myself and it was a wonderful coming home. When I did, I wanted to take a look and see where I had gone wrong and what I had misinterpreted and what the Buddha actually said about happiness because the Buddha was called the happy one. The Dalai Lama starts out his book, The Art of Happiness, with the line, the purpose of life is to be happy. And joy is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. Suffering is not a factor of enlightenment. (laughs) You don't get any extra credit for suffering more. Joy is one of the four divine abodes, one of the Brahma-viharas, sublime states. And there are many different expressions of happiness through the teachings. Piti, which is translated as rapture or bliss, sukha, happiness, um, upeka, peace, equanimity, pamoja, gladness, many, many different expressions of happiness. And I wanted to see what the Buddha not only said about it, but how one can cultivate happiness, if that's where it was, what it was about. Because he said, go for the highest happiness, and you will have all the other ones along the way, and it's good to enjoy them. So with that in mind, I looked at the teachings and there were three particular teachings that um, made sense to me, not only made sense, but inspired me to see this is how one can practice and cultivate well-being. I call it awakening joy, but the word joy might be a stretch for a lot of people. Sometimes people just say, I'll take not being miserable today, you know? (laughs) So if you think, oh my goodness, is this kind of skipping through a field with daisies and or pasting a smiley smile on your face, that's not what I'm talking about. But well-being and having a sense of engagement where you can meet anything in life and basically open up to the goodness in life. I have Uh, I quote Ajahn Sumedho, who's a a very inspiring Theravadan monk, saying that uh, sometimes in in Buddhism one gets the idea one shouldn't enjoy life and one should contemplate the beauty of a flower and and know that it's going to decay or see a beautiful woman as a rotting corpse. And he says, this is a fixed, this is valuable, but it's not a fixed position to take. Once you see the beauty and the goodness of things and have true insight, you get delighted by them. In them we find joy. So I saw there were some principles that really struck me that not only I could practice, but I wanted to share with uh, people who um, would listen to, uh, to what I had to say and see if we practiced them together and if uh, not only theoretically or on retreat, but they can be practicable in daily life. 
And that's uh, what I uh, built the, uh, the course around, which started as just a couple of small experimental groups of about 20 people each, and now um, has many, many people um, doing it at the same time. And it, it seems to work because the key ingredient, I mean, it's basically Buddha Dharma, but packaged in a way that's accessible. And if you decide to do it, that's, that's what makes it work. So the three principles that are the cornerstone of what I share in the book and the course One, the teaching that the Buddha gives on wise effort. I'm sure Eugene has talked about wise effort uh, many times here. And the traditional definition of wise effort, the technical definition, is guarding against unwholesome states that have not yet arisen, overcoming unwholesome states that have arisen, that is, if you're feeling confused or angry or uh, jealous or whatever, there are ways, tools to work with so you're not completely lost in those unwholesome states. Unwholesome states meaning states that lead to suffering. And then the two positives are developing wholesome states that haven't yet arisen. That is, it's good to develop mindfulness or loving-kindness or generosity or compassion. And then the fourth is when a wholesome state is here to maintain and increase it. Maintaining and increasing wholesome states that have arisen. He said this is a good thing. Wholesome states meaning states that lead to happiness. And In general, wholesome states are very expansive, like love or mindfulness or clarity or generosity or gratitude. And unwholesome states, greed, hatred, delusion, confusion, fear, all of those are contracting. They don't allow us to see clearly. So this first principle, oh, let's develop wholesome states, and when they're here, we can maintain and increase them. This is what the Buddha said. That means you have to really know where happiness lies and not get tricked into thinking that happiness is where we're often told it will lie. And this is one of the real profound Uh, insights and gifts of uh, Buddha Dharma to point us to real happiness. (coughs) Excuse me. As an example of what we're up against and how we can get deceived and confused. And if you saw the Super Bowl today, you know that they pay like, you know, what, three hundred or five to five hundred thousand dollars for 30 seconds of your attention so that they can get a message in even though you might say, oh, that's a bunch of garbage. There's something that gets in the brain, and they know it. This is a, an ad that somebody gave me a number of years ago. It's called The Gold Shivers. You might not be able to see it from where you are. It's a beautiful woman draped in gold, two-page ad. I'll read it to you. The gold shivers, that electric excitement, that thrilling warmth, Every new piece of gold jewelry ignites it once again. 
Nothing makes you feel as good as gold. And then the second, you can see her while I read. What is the real substance of a new piece of gold jewelry? Emotion, pure and powerful. From the first small shiver of excitement when a shimmering necklace of gold beads catches a woman's eye to the great shivers of delight when the coveted object actually becomes hers. Among life's pleasures, count this deeply felt euphoria as unique. The only way to get the gold shivers is by getting the gold. (laughs) Very effective. You might not even want some gold until you hear this. Oh yeah, maybe I'd like a little gold too. It's very powerful. And and we're told, uh, according to this one book um, by this guy, Kali uh, Lassen, Culture Jam, the average American gets 3,000 messages every day like this, saying, you think you're happy? You're not happy. You need this to make you happy. Unless you're on retreat at Spirit Rock or you're, you're just completely not plugged into anything around. This is happening all the time, barraging us. The Buddha talked about that 2,500 years ago, and now it's brought to a high art to fan your desires. So (coughs) the first principle, seeing where happiness lies in developing wholesome states. Second principle, he said that with wholesome states, there is a gladness that arises when you're feeling generous. It feels good. When you perform a random act of kindness, it feels good, doesn't it? We want to do that. The Dalai Lama has this expression, we are generous because it actually feels good, and he calls this selfish altruism. And he says it's a good thing that it feels good to be generous. And the Buddha says, with that feeling good, that gladness connected with what is wholesome opens the heart. Lights, the words are, uh, one delights in the meaning, one gains inspiration in the truth. And the gladness that's connected with the wholesome is an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. (coughs) An an equipment of mind, that gladness, when you're feeling it, it's hard to stay angry. And he recommends, if you're in the middle of a generous act, this is in one discourse, Majima number uh, 99 for scholars here, he says, in the middle of a generous act, you you should say to yourself, something like, oh, I'm being generous now. Isn't that interesting? And he says, thinking I'm generous, one gains inspiration in the meaning, inspiration in the truth, and that gladness delights us. He's not saying, hey, does everybody and check it out. Hey, I'm a generous guy. He's saying, Reflect to yourself how good it feels to be generous. How good that feeling as it moves through us delights us. And we can feel that gladness. 
So I thought that if we could cultivate wholesome states and tune into the gladness, we'll do a a couple of exercises um, in a little while so you get the sense of this, that you are connecting with that gladness and really making an imprint. And in fact, the, the third principle is um, the power of making that imprint over time. In one of another discourses of the Buddha, he says, whatever one, whatever the practitioner frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. If you, and that makes pretty much, that makes some sense, doesn't it? If you frequently think and ponder upon how everybody around you is a jerk and life sucks, and what a mess we're in, that will become the inclination of your mind. And that's what you will, that the lens you'll look at life through. If you frequently think and ponder upon how amazing it is to be alive, how there's goodness in people if we can see it and access it, including ourselves, how many blessings there are in our lives. If you frequently think and ponder upon those things, that will become the inclination of your mind and the lens that you'll more naturally see things through. <clears throat> now, I'm not talking about living in denial. In fact, I, am, I do teach Buddhist philosophy for the last number of decades, and I know the first noble truth, they're suffering in life. Happy people are not happy all the time. They're engaged with life and they can hold all the dukkha, all the suffering in a way that doesn't overwhelm because there's space, because the mind is open and spacious and not just contracted on how bad, things, how bad everything is. That's why the Buddha said to cultivate wholesome states so the, the hard stuff doesn't stick and overwhelm. So, in modern neuroscience, this is quite substantiated, this inclining the mind towards wholesome or unwholesome. The common phrase in neuroscience, and there's, uh, I, I love um, the neuroscience that's come out in the last few years, and there's neuroscience throughout the book. And in the course, by the way, we have wonderful guest speakers, neuroscientists and happiness experts and, and uh, Dharma friends. Uh, one, of my, one of my good friends, uh, Rick Hansen, who's written a beautiful book called Buddha's Brain, recently coming out about neuroscience and Buddha Dharma, uh, has taught me a lot about how neuroscience overlaps. And the famous phrase in neuroscience is, neurons that fire together, wire together. So if you keep on thinking a certain way, the neural pathway gets stronger and you can create either ruts, if they're negative ones, or grooves, grooving along. Uh, That is simply by repetition, which is what the Buddha said, we're creatures of habit. So he says, along with what it had occurred to me, that if you're very present 
if you take in the good, he talks about this, Rick Hansen does in, in, in Buddha's brain, it's been shown in brain research, if you take in the good and really savor it for a few moments, that it registers more deeply in your brain because we are trained to be on the lookout for the negative. This is what's kept our species surviving. And there's this very uh, both effective and sometimes um, counterproductive So you have to really let it register so that those positive experiences start to form in your brain for a more effective So what, what I have done with... Um, and I'll, I'll share with you a little bit uh, of, of the book, and uh, we can do some exercises together um, so you get a sense of it. One wholesome state, the one that the Buddha recommended as being the most powerful way to overcome sorrow, lamentation, and pain and anxiety, grief and despair, and realize the highest happiness, is mindfulness. This might not be news to you. Mindfulness cultivates all the other wholesome states and weakens the unwholesome states. And just so you get a sense of um, just some of the fun stories, I'll read a little bit of one of my favorite stories. We have little control over what thoughts arise in any particular moment. If we did, we'd probably have only thoughts of love and goodwill towards all of humanity, but a few others seem to slip through. We have profound thoughts, bizarre thoughts, and ugly thoughts. Seeing of what, what goes on in our mind, the fears, the pettiness, the judgments, can be humbling. I once heard a Tibetan Buddhist teacher playfully refer to looking at what's going on in our minds as one insult after another. Or as a common saying goes, self-knowledge is usually bad news. But it's actually very good news. While what arises in our mind is somewhat random and out of our control, we do have control over which thoughts we choose to dwell on. By training ourselves to pay attention to what's happening in our mind and body in any situation, we make it more likely that we will empower those thoughts that support our well-being. At one Awakening Joy class, meditation teacher Sylvia Borstein told a story about how becoming aware of what she was thinking helped reframe an experience. One evening, when she was staying in New York City, she had arranged to meet a friend for a theater performance and decided to take a bus to get there. As the bus crept along through the heavy traffic, Sylvia started worrying, I'm going to be late. I'll miss the curtain. 
My friend will worry about what happened to me. I shouldn't have taken the bus. The subway would have been so much faster. Figuring she could walk faster than the bus was going, Sylvia got off. And of course, as I'm walking, the bus passes me by. And now I'm thinking I should have taken a cab. Sylvia has been meditating for years, but she's also, by her own admission, been fretting for years, so it was an easy reaction to fall into. Continuing her story, she describes running down Broadway in high heels with a cold wind whipping around her. And then, all of a sudden, I have the thought, what am I doing? Oh, I'm grumbling. That's a moment of mindfulness. Up until then, I was caught up in a habit-driven narrative, an editorial comment about what was happening. The moment at which the mind says, Sylvia, you're grumbling, the lens switches and suddenly the truth of that moment is, I'm a 71-year-old woman running down Broadway in the middle of winter in high heels. That is far out. That is an extremely fortunate thing to be able to do. It changed everything. I felt proud and I actually hoped a lot of people saw me. When we're mindful, we can let go of thoughts that undermine our well-being and thereby frame our experience in a way that invites more ease. As Sylvia puts it, a moment of mindfulness is always a moment of freedom. We can have the courage to make choices that result in a positive difference for ourselves and others. So right now, just for a moment, close your eyes. And whatever mood you happen to be in, just notice right now how you're feeling physically, mentally. You might be in a happy mood, you might not be. Just notice any tension in your shoulders, your neck, or your hands. And just become aware of what's happening right now without trying to change anything. Feel your feet on the ground or your body on the chair or the floor. Know that you're alive as you breathe. Feel life as it moves through you. That's what's happening. Just notice how restful it is to simply be aware of what's happening instead of trying to make it any different than it is. Just relax in the truth of this moment. Very gently, let yourself come back. Mindfulness gives us refuge right here in the present moment. It keeps us from toppling forward with worry or fear or anticipation or think about the dwell in the past. It's happening right now. Life is happening right now. And a moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom, as Sylvia says. Now I'd like to go to another wholesome state because 
Mindfulness is really the underpinning of all the other ones. As we experience being in the middle of a wholesome state, then we turn our mindfulness to actually explore the landscape of what that feels like, and that is taking in the good, as Rick Hansen says. That is deepening the neural connections. So one very powerful, wholesome state that is one of the easiest accesses to well-being is that of gratitude. The Buddha talks about gratitude um, a lot, and there's a beautiful discourse which I've adapted in the, uh, in the book, um, which actually my co-writer, uh, Shoshana Alexander, has uh, adapted on the Buddha's discourse uh, of blessings. Uh, but I'll read this first, this little passage, and then we'll do a little gratitude practice to give you a sense of how this can work in your life whenever you're feeling some sense of well-being. And this is a, a, a story, a personal story. Uh, happened to me. <clears throat> One year, I was in Los Angeles visiting my then 89-year-old mother. This is two years ago. I brought with me a copy of Greater Good, a magazine published by a couple of brilliant minds at the University of California at Berkeley. Their focus is on reporting the breaking research on altruism and well-being. The topic of the particular issue I had with me was the beneficial effects of gratitude. As we sat at the dining room table eating the special eggplant dish my mother always makes for me, I told her about some of the findings. She said she was impressed by the reports but admitted she had a lifetime habit of looking at the glass half empty. I know I'm very fortunate to have so many things to be thankful for, but little things just set me off. She said she wished she could change the habit, but had doubts that that was possible. I'm just more used to seeing what's gone, going wrong, she concluded. After dinner, my mom and I broke out the Scrabble set, as we often do. She's a terrific player and derives great joy from trouncing her poor son, which he did a couple of weeks ago. It was really bad. Our conversation continued as the lines of tiles filled the board. You know, Mom, the key to gratitude is really in the way we frame a situation, I began. For instance, suppose all of a sudden your television isn't getting good reception. That's a scenario I can relate to, she agreed with a knowing smile. One way to describe your experience would be to say, this is so annoying I could scream. Or you could say, this is so annoying, and my life is really very blessed. She agreed that could make a big difference, but I don't think I can remember to do that, she sighed. So together we made up a gratitude game to remind her. <clears throat> Each time she complained about something, I would simply say, and, to which she would respond, and my life is very blessed. I was elated to see that she was willing to try it out. Over the next few days, as the complaints rolled off her tongue, we had many chances to play our little game. Many. We both chuckle each, we both chuckle each time she dutifully gave her agreed-upon reply. And although it had started out as just a fun game, after a while the exercise began to have some real impact. Her mood grew brighter as our week became filled with gratitude and a genuine good time. After I got home, my mother 
I called my mother a lot during the first few days to support her in keeping her gratitude practice alive. Miraculously, she kept at it, and the new habit took hold. My sister, who'd been out of town, called me when she got back. What did you do to mom, she asked. (laughs) This is true. To my delight and amazement, my mother has continued doing the practice, and the change has been revolutionary. Seven months after my visit, she sent a card for my birthday. As is our family tradition, it contained a poem she wrote for the occasion. This one I especially cherish. Even though she started losing her sight during those months, the effects of her gratitude practice are evident in this poignant excerpt, and it goes to show you you can teach an elder human new tricks. This was her poem. Ninety is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I am blessed, awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I have ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing, to be sure. And she's kept at it. Uh, In fact, a few months ago, I, as in our conversation, she was talking about, oh, I'm so lucky, we're so blessed. I said, Mom, you are so positive these days. She said, I'm having so many positive thoughts, it's positively exhausting. (laughs) She's a character. so, uh, we can, uh, I'll just read this last piece and then do this, this, uh, the exercise. The choice is ours. We can go through life focusing on the burdens or letting our challenges serve as reminders of the blessings that also surround us. Maybe the story of my 90-year-old mother can inspire you to remember in the midst of life's hassles that your life, too, is really very blessed. So let's do a little gratitude practice, and I'll show you how then mindfulness can be added onto the experience to uh, increase, sustain and increase the wholesome state. (coughs) So close your eyes. And um, for a moment, think of someone or something in your life that you're grateful for or grateful to. Maybe a blessing, some situation, or someone who has enriched your life. And if you can, have an image of of that person or this situation. And as you connect with it, just give thanks. Silently saying, thank you. To life or that person, thank you. Just let yourself feel it for a moment. And if you're in touch with any gratitude, Let your awareness 
explore the landscape of gratitude. How does gratitude feel? Where do you feel it? Maybe in your chest or your belly or your face or your skin shining, your body relaxing and opening. Just without trying to make anything more out of it, just check out what gratitude feels like. We have an amazing capacity to feel grateful. You can bring somebody else or another blessing to your life now. Again, have an image of that person or that circumstance. And once again, say thank you. Just connect from your heart. Thank you. And now, just let yourself relax into that experience of gratitude. Nothing extra to make happen. Just let yourself enjoy it. And then, when you're ready, you can open your eyes, stay connected to that whatever feeling, whatever feeling of openness or expansion you have in this wholesome state. So the, the principle which you can take with you without taking the course, notice wholesome states when they arise. Don't miss them. Don't think it's just a fluke. You woke up and happened to have a, a good day. Okay, well, feeling good today. I and mean, that's wonderful. But to feel what it's like to feel good is different than just knowing, oh, feeling pretty good. Okay, what else is going on? Just take a few moments. Oh, this is what it's like to feel good. This is what it's like to feel love for my child or my friend. Oh, this is what it's like to care when my, my heart goes out and I want to express my caring or compassion like you did collecting all that money for the people in Haiti, not to miss it, to really let yourself just take in the good. Oh, how beautiful. This heart has that capacity. Just a little bit of mindfulness onto that feeling of well-being. As you practice it, little by little, you start to incline your mind that way. Not that you are naive in thinking everything is wonderful, but you start looking for the good around you. And the more you can see the good, the more you can 
not only find it, but bring it out of others. One of my basic practices for many years, keep looking for the good. You know, when, when somebody comes into a room and suppose somebody you know who has a lot of judgment in their mind. They come into a room and you can feel them judging you and seeing, looking for all your flaws. How do you feel? Flawed, don't you? <laughs> somebody else might come in and they might know all, see all your foibles, all your flaws, but they see how beautiful you are and you know that's what they're looking at. How do you feel? Beautiful, don't you? We have a tremendous power to draw out the good from around us. So you're doing yourself as well as everybody else uh, a great kindness by tuning into the goodness, the gladness of the wholesome, as the Buddha said. And the more you see it, the more you awaken it in others as well. So we only have a few minutes left. I think I'll, I'll stop here and see if there's any, any questions or comments in the five minutes we have left before we go. Yeah. Hi. That's a powerful question. Could everybody hear? No? She went to, uh, she's generally seeing the good, and a few months ago she went to a movie that had a very, it was very believable uh, post-Armageddon uh, movie, and it, and it impacted her deeply, and she's been fretting and worrying about her son and storing up water everywhere, and, and, and it's really been hard to, to get out and what happened and what can she do? Uh, well, we are very susceptible and it's amazing how, how we take in and can impact our information. So one thing to, to really keep in mind is, you know, as the, the Buddha suggests, be in the company of the wise and, and minimize your company of things that will, that will disturb you. Uh, unless you're powerful, you've got enough of a center so that you can, you can be there with, with those things so that you can affect, you can override the negativity. Um, so first to honor, you've been, you know, mildly traumatized in, in, in that, to really just honor that. And there are things that, that you might do um, 
first, uh, you might take in and, and actually look for things that will inspire you at good possibilities, that give you faith in the possibilities. Um, and take in teachings that might actually, you might um, practice visualizing uh, the best. But also to, um, sometimes if I've been, if, if things are very heavy, uh, you might do a little ritual to um, let your body actually take in another reality. Um, and maybe we can talk about this later because there's not much time. But you really have to honor, sometimes you go through things and what you've gone through can be a valuable lesson to just see how people can get imprinted in such a, a profound way so that when, when you, you know, you don't, you're not as likely to say, why don't you just get off it, you know? Come on, you know, that's not going to happen. It's humbling to see how deeply we can be impacted. And so it can give you some real compassion for how other people are impacted in that way and maybe use it as, a, as you're going through this process as something to, to connect with all the people who've gone through something like that before and be an agent of um, holding a positive vision as best you can. Yes. Yes. And I like that that's changing, but my default is to just go right back there. And what you were saying actually made me think that maybe there's some way to jump start when that starts to happen. Because when when we're in default, most of us, when we're in habitual thinking, we don't realize that that's what we're doing. Right, right. So how do we catch ourselves if it's that ingrained? Okay. Uh, uh, It's that ingrained how she's seen the negative since she was. A, a little kid, and first of all, I hope you get my mother's uh, possibility of inspiring that it is possible to change. I, love your <laughs> <laughs> I do too. Um, but the key, the first step in 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 this, and also that the Buddha said, the most powerful agent of change is intention is having the intention to change. If your intention is not strong enough, then you will likely just remain as you are. If your intention to stay the same is greater than your intention to change, you'll stay the same. If you are clear that your intention to change is greater, it becomes greater than your intention to stay the same. It might not happen on the timetable that you'd like, but if you are committed to changing, and you are very patient with the process, and every time you do it the new way, instead of feeling discouraged all the times that, oh, you're back to your old default setting, 
you focus in seeing, oh, how good it feels, then you're in the process of learning a new way and you're very patient and you get really good support and you practice, you know, I, I would recommend doing something like, like this, like, like the Course, uh, because it's all about practice. That's what the Buddha said, you know, what, whatever you frequently think and ponder upon. And to honor that, if you've been doing this for your whole life, it's not going to happen overnight, but you've probably seen some shifts in practice since you've been doing it. So the Dalai Lama has this great expression. He says, you know, if you're, if you're impatient with practice, this is the great hindrance of, of the Western mind. You know, we just want enlightenment fast. Sometimes it's called McDharma, you know. <laughs> and he says, if you, instead of seeing, well, have I, have I changed yet? You look over five or ten year periods of time and see, I'm going in the right direction and let yourself feel good about that. That's all you need to know. Keeping in touch with your intention and knowing you're facing in the right direction and having really good company and support being in the company of the wise and practicing little by little. What else is there to do? What's the alternative? Might as well go for it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.